friends. Thank you for tuning in to the weekly City Church San Francisco podcast. Throughout the fall of 2020 on this podcast, we'll be taking a look through the Bible at what happened to people when things fell apart in their worlds, sort of like what many of us are experiencing right now. We're calling this fall series When Things Fall Apart because, well, things feel like they're falling apart. So let's talk about it. We invite you to lean into these stories each week to embrace the intersections where these ancient stories collide with our current collective world and our own personal lives. As always, we thank you for being a part of City Church Online through this podcast. And we invite you to join us live each Sunday at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Thanks. The scripture reading for today is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. The Word of the Lord. Pray with me, please. God in heaven, meet us now in this 
ancient story of uh, life that is coming apart, but one that you're putting back together again in Jesus Christ. Let us, let us meet Jesus in a new way this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, City Church. Um, if we have not met, my name's Jonathan Gunlock. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's great to be with you this morning. If um, you have known me for a while or you've been following along for quite a while, you might notice my scene has changed and my family moved houses just a week ago. Um, so we're in a stage of our life kind of falling apart, a deconstruction and then a reconstruction. But as much as if I were to change this camera angle and you would see what a mess things are, the internet seems to be working. So we're going to just plug along, plug along and uh, hope this works out well. But I'm honored and I'm really um, happy to be able to wrap up this sermon series that we've been on for a couple months now of when things fall apart. And what we've seen, and I think it's been so good for us as a church, what we've seen is that this story of scripture is actually a giant story of things falling apart and coming back together again and falling apart again and coming back together again. And it's in that process that God uses those transitions, those deaths and rebirths to unleash new life. And today we get to talk about a moment of personal theological and sociological deconstruction in the life of the very famous character of Saul of Tarsus. Now Saul, who's also known as the Apostle Paul, um, same guy, I'll probably interchange those names a bit today, but this is the original Damascus Road experience. And it's where Saul goes from being public enemy number one of the early church to the Apostle Paul, who goes on to write much of the New Testament that we now have and who's actually um, impacted religious and philosophical thought, maybe perhaps more than anybody besides Jesus Christ himself. But this is where it all begins. Through this very transformative experience on the Damascan Road that wipes out and resets all the years of Paul's training and the intense fanatical rage that he had at that moment. Because when this scene starts, this guy, Saul, is basically a religious terrorist. He's a complete fanatic. He goes to the chief priests in Jerusalem and asks for what's essentially a hunting license for Christians. Except they're not even called Christians yet. If you look at the text, they're referred to as followers of the way. They're simply a small sect of Jews who are learning and discovering who this Jesus was and learning to live according to the Jesus way. But they're threatening everything Paul believes and stands for because Saul was a Pharisee. He's part of the religious order in the day whose chief concern was restoring purity and strict adherence to the Jewish religious structures. And to Saul, this Jesus way, was a serious perversion and a threat to their faith and practice and had to be stopped, like at all costs. Now, not everyone in Jerusalem in the religious elite of the day felt that way. Now, some were arguing for tolerance. Some were just saying, let this Jesus movement thing play out. Let's see how it goes. If God's in it, it will flourish. If God's not in it, it'll fade away. But that's not Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus is on a rampage. Just one chapter before, in chapter 8, Saul supervises the stoning and murder of the martyr Stephen. Stephen, a leader in the early Jesus way. And it's hard for us to truly imagine the brutality of that act 
but it was psychologically and, and physically tortuous, and Saul had no problem with it. He actually gave his religious credentials as a, as a Pharisee to give tacit approval and to kind of supervise that, that violent mob. So what on earth is fueling his rage? What on earth is fueling this intense fanaticism? You know, scholars look at it and they see a few threads. I mean, on the one hand, Saul's ambitious. He's young and ambitious and he's trying to prove himself as a young Pharisee. And he talks about that later himself quite a bit too. But, you know, he's also afraid because the structures that he thinks hold his world together seem threatened by this Jesus way. So he's afraid. But beyond just the ambition and the fear, there's something that I think is actually more uh, fascinating going on with Saul in this moment, something psychological. And you can see this in some of Paul's later writings when he's referring back to this time in his life. There are indications that he was suppressing his own doubt, that he was suppressing his own doubt. Now think about that for a second. You know, Carl Jung says, fanaticism is always a compensation for hidden doubt. Fanaticism is always a compensation for hidden doubt. Religious persecutions occur only where heresy is a menace. And what we know about Saul or Paul is that some of his own close relatives, his very close relatives, were already beginning to join the Jesus way. And we know through his later writings that he was already beginning to question whether his strict way of following God through the temple system, through all the rules and the law, whether it could even work. So he's starting to crack at least a little bit. And what happens sometimes is that when you're starting to doubt, when you're just beginning to doubt, you just lean in harder to your belief system, into your safety structure for a while just to see if you can hold on to it. We do this sometimes, and it reminded me of a time earlier in my life. It's starting to become quite a bit earlier in my life when I was a practicing attorney, and I was a little bit like this Apostle Paul. I mean, I wasn't as violent, didn't kill anybody, or I don't think physically hurt anybody. But like some of you watching today, I was also raised in a very conservative, very traditional Christian setting. And so I went to law school, and near the end of law school, I was recruited by a conservative public policy law firm to basically fly around the country and file lawsuits to try to stop anything from changing, specifically in marriage and family law. Now, this was in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and the goal seemed to be at the time to just kind of like freeze culture, just freeze culture kind of like it was 1985. I don't know why, but 1985 seemed to be the point. Everybody just wanted to freeze that, keep America just like that, and America would stay great. But the problem was, I was already beginning to doubt a lot of my inherited beliefs. I was living in, living in Chicago at the time. I was exposed to a much more diverse culture. I was realizing that my paradigms really couldn't address the real needs and the, human, the real human beings that I found there around me. But for a while, for a while I found that if I just leaned in hard enough into my work and just pressed down as hard as possible, I could bring some of that old coherence back into my life. And it worked for for just a little while, not long, because God and God's wisdom had a very different idea. And God was even using these poorly devised lawsuits to continue to change me. Because what happened, as I flew around the country filing lawsuits, I kept running into the exact same opposing counsel on the other side of the aisle, 
attorneys from places like the ACLU and Human Rights Campaign, people with very different life experiences and very different legal outlook than my own. And the thing that surprised me was how well we got along. And then what really surprised me, because we kept running into each other, is we actually started to become true friends. But, you know, what totally broke my paradigm is the day I realized that they were welcoming me. They were showing me grace and kindness, even though I was the aggressor in their midst. The organizations I represented were trying to take things away that they cared about and they needed. And despite that, they were showing me kindness and grace personally to me, the Christian in the courtroom. And that experience, the experience of being welcomed, played a key role in my own theological and sociological deconstruction. I realized I needed to rethink everything, to repent in a very real deep sense. And what's interesting is even before my mind could figure it all out, my body knew. I mean, I would get nauseous and agitated anytime I had to work on one of those cases. And ultimately, that whole experience led me to seminary, really helped drive me towards seminary, which for me, was a time of deep reevaluation and rebuilding everything from the ground up. A time of repentance, of deconstruction and reconstruction. So fanaticism is compensation for hidden doubt. Really interesting. Now, what's the thing for you? What's the thing for you right now? What's garnering your obsession, your personal fanaticism right now? Or what's causing you overwhelming anxiety? I mean, what feels like a threat? to your world today? What's the one thing where you lie awake at night saying, if only I could get control of this one person or this one situation, everything would be okay. Or maybe that kind of energy, you know, it can be a very violent kind of energy. Maybe you're turning it inward. Maybe you're directing it down on yourself feeling like you have to be the perfect employee, the perfect business leader, the perfect spouse or friend, the perfect parent, the perfect child. And if you let up for one second, the entire world is gonna come crashing down. You know, life, life can feel like that a lot, maybe especially right now in this time of COVID. But as we've been talking about these last many weeks, God is actually in the business of letting our worlds fall apart. God's in the business of letting our worlds fall apart so that God can rebuild them on something greater. And that's what happens here to Saul. Picking up at verse uh, three. Now he was going along, approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. It's an amazing mystical encounter, just flashes of light. Saul falls to the ground. He's blinded. He asks who this person is. And the surprising answer comes back. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now I picture Saul in that moment in complete cognitive and mental breakdown. I mean, he's blind, he's confronted with this godlike figure, he's suddenly realizing that he's gotten everything seriously wrong. 
And then this confounding statement where Jesus says, why are you persecuting me, Jesus? For Paul, it's like, I've never met Jesus. I've been chasing his followers, but why, why is he making this personal about him in that way? But in that one statement, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. There's a kernel. There's a little seed of what grows into all, all of Paul's theology from that day on. We'll talk about that a bit at the end. But this is a moment of complete disorientation. I mean, blindness for three days, complete shock. Saul can't eat. He can't drink. He's in complete darkness, a complete breakdown of his worldview. And it probably felt for him like this was just going to last forever. Like this was just the way life was going to be now. And I don't know. I don't fully know why God tends to do things this way. But the pattern in the Bible, and it honestly, it's not just the Bible, the pattern in many of the world's great stories, is that there's often a movement from a great epiphany, a great moment of revelation, from a bright and startling moment where you can see that something new is happening, that often then moves into a dark and challenging time of waiting a confusing darkness that can that can last for quite a while and you just have to wait and sit with the darkness until you learn the lessons it wants to teach you and then you can begin to chart a new way forward you know, theologians often call this the dark night of the soul and it serves a purpose i mean it really does it's a time of purging a time of letting go of your old patterns a time of being prepared for something new but it can feel dark I mean, it can feel very dark and scary and depressing. It can feel like death, like death. Rowan Williams talks about these moments. And just incidentally, not really relevant, but just need to say, Rowan Williams is my absolute favorite living scholar and theologian. We, we love Rowan Williams so much, my wife and I, that we named our second-born son, Rowan, after him. Rowan Williams says, the dark night is God's attack on religion. Now think about that for a second. The dark night is God's attack on religion. Now he's not saying it's God's attack on faith or growth or spirituality. He's not saying that at all. What Rowan is saying, and he actually does go on to write this, is that if you want to know the true love of God, if you want to know the true inexhaustible, unspeakable love of God, all your religious systems, the way you use your religion as a morality code, as a belonging system, as a tribal identity, all those things have to go. They got to go. And this is what's happening to Saul here. The way he thought the world was held together was being torn down. The temple system, the law, the need to hyper-perfect hyper his faith and practice, all that had to go. And in those three days of darkness, Jesus is working in Saul's heart saying, I believe, Saul, you got to let it all go. Let me rebuild your world, not around your religious purity, but on myself. Let me begin to teach you what it means to be in Christ. Because when I said to you on that Damascus road that you're persecuting me, it's because my followers and I are so close that their suffering and my suffering are shared, that they are in me and I am in them. And you need to begin to rebuild your world around that idea.
And that idea, that idea of being in Christ, becomes the core of Paul's theology from that day forward. What begins in those three days of darkness, of wrestling with how Jesus could be so connected to his followers that their persecution was his persecution, all of that turns into Paul's life project of explaining to the world how everything, how everything holds together in Christ. Paul mentions this phrase, in Christ, over 160 times in the New Testament. And in his later writings, he even applies it to the physical, the very physical universe itself. In Colossians and some other places, he talks about how the entire universe, everything that exists, is being held together in the risen Christ. Now, that's a pretty mind-blowing and awesome idea. But it doesn't get Saul out of this moment, out of this darkness, because in that moment, his life is in shambles. I mean, he still has to deal with himself. He's, he's killed. He's thrown countless people into prison. He's probably broken up families, and maybe this Jesus movement is real and good, but how on earth is he supposed to find a place in it? How on earth is he to repair and make up for all he's done, all the harm he's done? How is he ever to be accepted and trusted again? He's going to need something else. He's going to need another transforming experience to take that next step into his new life. Picking up at uh, verse 10. Now, there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a dream, in a vision, Ananias. He answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias hears this and says, nah, no way. I ain't going. I know this guy. I know this Saul. I know what he's done. My friends know what he's done. And this is a death sentence. So no, can't do it. And you know, Ananias, he's right by all accounts. From everything he knew, he's right. But Jesus says, look, I've chosen this man. And in verse 16, Jesus says something so interesting. He says, I myself, I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I myself will show him how much Saul must suffer for the sake of my name. Now those are like super interesting words, but can be a little confusing too. And I need to say it's not payback. It's not like Jesus is saying, don't worry Ananias, I'll pay Saul back for all he's done. It's not that at all, because I would be tempted to read it that way. What Jesus is saying is that Saul will now know the sufferings of Christ in the same way that Ananias and his friends and the entire community of Jesus knew a life of suffering and sacrifice. Saul would now be one of them. And for many of us today, that concept, the suffering community of Jesus, it's, it's pretty foreign to us because not many of us honestly have suffered very much at all for being associated with Jesus. Now, I do realize there are definite exceptions here, even within city church, there are definite exceptions. But, you know, and then there's this whole other topic of how we ought to sacrifice and ought to spend some time learning what suffering for the sake of Jesus means in a pretty privileged community like most of us who live here in San Francisco. 
But certainly for the early church, for the early church, this, this was much more obvious. To be associated with Jesus was to sign up for a life of sacrifice for the good of the world. And the life of suffering was part of how all Jesus followers were joined to God and to each other. Willie James Jennings notes that, um, kind of expanding on this, he says, Jesus, Jesus is one with the bodies, one with the bodies of those who have called on his name and followed in his way by the Spirit. Their pain and suffering is his very own. The mystery of God is found in human flesh, moving in and with the disciples who are a communion of suffering and a witness to life. So Jesus is saying to Ananias, Saul will be part of this suffering community now. He's part of your family now. And it was enough. It was enough to get Ananias to go. Ananias goes straight to the house, goes right in, puts his hand on Saul and calls him brother. Brother Saul. Brother. I mean, just think about that from Saul's existential moment right there in the darkness, wondering if he can ever be healed and forgiven, healed, forgiven, whether he can ever be accepted again. And then he feels that hand on him and he hears his name and he's called brother. It's only then, it's only then in that moment that his sight comes back. He feels the hand, he hears his name, he's welcomed as brother, and the scales fall off and his eyes are opened. And if you've, if you've ever in your life been in a really dark time when you couldn't see the way through, and you were beginning to doubt whether all the good things in your life were over, and in that moment, if you've ever experienced what it is to have someone who knows you, who has the trust and authority in your life to speak directly to you, and they come to you in that dark time and say to you in a way that you can really hear, I see you. I see the way you're knit together. I see your gifts. I see your suffering. And I'm telling you, your life is not over. Your life's not over. I'm telling you that you will have joy again. You will find meaning again. You will know love and acceptance again. If you've ever experienced anything like that, that ability to see yourself in somebody else's eyes, to be called brother or sister or friend, when you thought you'd always be on the outside or in the dark, then you know how powerful that is. How powerful it is. I mean, it is so much more powerful than any religious idea. That experience of being welcomed and blessed, of knowing you belong, is so much more powerful. So if you're in a dark time right now, and these days in COVID, as we and as we settle into winter, there's a lot of darkness, plenty of darkness to go around. But please know that you cannot actually get through all of it on your own. And in a church like ours, my hope is that nobody would feel like they need to go it alone. There are pastors and counselors and church members all ready and wanting to walk with you in your dark night and to speak into each other's lives, blessing and hope 
and belonging. But also as a church, that is who we need to be. I mean, we need to be a church of Ananias. We need to believe that we actually have the power to speak words of healing and belonging, to believe that we can cross cultural and social boundaries and connect and support one another because we believe that our world is not held together by our religion or by our past. It's not held together by our best efforts. It's held together by Jesus Christ, holding you, holding the other, holding you and your enemies, holding you and your current life challenge in his love, in his love, meaning you don't have to generate all the love. You just have to rest in it and begin to allow it to flow through you and watch the transformation begin to happen. You know, in closing, I was thinking about Paul's experience, um, at least how I imagine it, some of how I've described it today. And it reminded me of a poem of what it's like to go from believing the world is one way to seeing that no Everything is actually held together in Christ. This is uh, by Malcolm Gwee, and it's called Everything Holds Together. And incidentally, it's also a great pre-Advent poem. You know, Advent begins next week. Advent is a great time to reconsider what is truly holding our life together. So instead of praying us out of the sermon, I'm just going to leave us with this poem. Everything holds together. Everything holds together. Everything. From stars that pierce the dark like living sparks, to secret seeds that open every spring. From spanning galaxies to spinning quarks, everything holds together and coheres, unfolding from the center whence it came. And now that hidden heart of things appears, the firstborn of creation takes a name. And shall I see the one through whom I am? Shall I behold the one for whom I made, the light in light, the flame within the flame, icon to Theo, image of my God? He comes, a little child, to bless my sight, that I might come to him for life and light. Amen.